1: When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt, Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Cur- Street is on the phone. 30 the Here. podcast. Mania, the Armstrong Sports Podcast. Yeah. It is Friday, May 6th, 2022, people. Hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody's having a great day. Hope everybody is ready for a loaded episode of the Eratora Sports Podcast. Here is the deal for today's show. We're going to open with just one. I just want to give you, uh, if you listen to Wednesday's show, I mentioned that I was going to a Dave Chappelle show, had no idea that it would turn into the biggest story in the world, basically. So I'll tell you my quick experience there and also an update from something that Dan Lust and I talked about before we get into the meat of the show here is what I want to hit on, really dive deep into today. One, has Lincoln Riley become another new villain in college football? This, of course, off the Jordan Addison news, off of his departure from Oklahoma. I think he has. I think it's good for college football, and I explain why. From there, it appears as though nothing is official yet that Amani Bates, the very highly touted former player at Memphis is set to commit to Louisville. I will talk about what he could potentially bring, why I like it, why I think it actually makes sense. And finally, we'll wrap the show with where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Some fun stuff on the NFL draft, the NBA, college football, college basketball, a lot of good stuff on today's show. I should mention, by the way, two quick things before we get to the show. One, Uh, There will be no show Monday. Just really quick, no show Monday. Obviously, uh, Sunday is Mother's Day. Hope everybody has a great Mother's Day. If you're lucky enough to still have your mom, hope you enjoy her. If you're lucky enough to have a a wife, a daughter, whoever, hope everybody has a great uh, Mother's Day weekend. I will not be available to do the show Monday in a good way. We'll be spending time with my family. Also, just a quick heads up, this means nothing for you guys and girls, but we will be technically on this show switching hosting platforms Uh, for the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It's a technical thing, but I just want you guys to keep an eye, you guys and girls, keep an eye on your subscription status. If all of a sudden you start not getting shows, I don't think that will be an issue. I've already talked with the company multiple times. But just keep an eye on it. Over the next few weeks, we are going to be switching hosting platforms. Uh, and it's just something to keep an eye on in terms of your subscription. If you have any questions, you can always hit me up on Twitter at Aaron underscore Torres or at Aaron Torres pod. You should have to do nothing. The show should, be del- should continue to be delivered to you the way they always have been. Uh, but yeah, just something to keep an eye on. And again, no show on Monday. Hope everybody has a great Mother's Day. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day, and actually, before we get to the topic of the day, uh, two quick things that I need to put a bow on from Wednesday's episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Didn't think I'd be talking about either of them, but two kind of very important things took a very strange twist after Wednesday's show. We'll talk about those really quick, and then we'll get to Lincoln Riley. The first one, uh, if you listen all the way till the end, if you listen to the Baylor Shireman stuff, one thing that I did talk about. Uh, I said something about, oh, by the way, uh, I'm recording early on Tuesday because I am going to the Dave Chappelle show on Tuesday night. So if anything crazy happens on Tuesday night, we're going to have to address it on Friday's show. Well, I didn't know that the crazy thing that was going to happen on Tuesday night, I was talking about it in sports. I did not know that like the biggest story on planet Earth was going to happen, uh, you know, maybe two football fields away from me at the Hollywood Bowl. And so I'll be honest, I really didn't see the whole incident that, that happened with Dave Chappelle. Uh, My wife and I were kind of, we had a great time. It was a great show. We're walking out, and all of a sudden, we hear a commotion on stage. You can't really see anyone that's been to a a show or a concert or a comedy show. You know when you're walking out of a big venue, uh, you can't always see what's happening in front of you. There's a million people congested into a little spot, and so we hear all this commotion, and then we hear Chris Rock say something about Will Smith, and we're kind of like, oh, okay, I guess Chris Rock is back out, and they're doing whatever, And it was only after that, you know, somebody kind of as we're walking out of the arena goes, did you see somebody just jump on stage and go after Dave Chappelle? And we were like, no. Um, So, you know, I I should address it because I mentioned on last show that that I, I was going to the Dave Chappelle show. But I did not really see what became the biggest story, you know, on planet Earth. And what was especially crazy to me was that I thought you know, in the stadium, in that moment, in the you know venue, the whatever you want to call it at the moment, it felt like kind of a, a quirky, weird, bizarre thing. That obviously took on a very serious kind of tone over the last couple days. We learn more about the guy that rushed the stage, the fact that he had a weapon, all that good stuff. Uh, I'm not smart enough to know if this has anything to do with Will Smith from two or three weeks ago at the Oscars going after Chris Rock. What I do know is it's wild. It's scary. I don't really want to reflect on it anymore because even though I was in the venue, I really don't know much more than, than you guys do. But but some of you have asked, you were like, dude, you were at Chappelle. You said it on the podcast I absolutely was uh it was crazy and it's crazy to think that I was in the place it, you know where the biggest story in really all of entertainment maybe all of in the world happened on Tuesday night on a much more positive note uh something else happened on early Thursday that I thought was worth addressing it doesn't feel like a full segment topic but I do want to hit on it very briefly um and if you listen to Wednesday's episode it, you know Dan Lust, the legal expert came on and one thing that we all agreed, we, he and I both agreed upon, we kind of tongue-in-cheek said we're going to save college sports, but he said, as a lawyer, he believed that the NCAA or the powers that be in college sports, they needed a national uh, NIL law, a federal NIL law at the federal level. And the analogy that he kind of used was that it's kind of like the drinking age, right? At one point, New York and New Jersey had separate drinking ages, and then you would cross the border from one to the other, it, you know, it was eighteen in Jersey, twenty one in New York, or vice versa, whatever. And then everybody would go, to go. You know, would, would would go over the border. They drive home. There was all these unintended consequences, and ultimately, there was a federal law that says all fifty states, you have to be twenty one to drink. And so that way, you don't have those unintended consequences of people driving over the border. Why do I bring it up? It is because of the fact that uh, on Thursday morning, we get a report that. Uh, Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, and George Kliokov, the commissioner of the Pac-12, are set to meet with folks in Washington, D.C. to talk about a federal bill as far as NIL is concerned. And one thing I did say on last episode was, Um, you know, I, I did say like, like, you know, I've been freaking out about this and I've probably been a little bit whiny about this, but I did feel like at some point there were too many people that were upset about this, that it felt like at some point we had to sort of wrap, wrap our arms around it. And so I do think that this is a great first step to really kind of putting our arms around NIL you know, the way that I look at it is pretty straightforward. If Greg Sankey is behind kind of, a, I, don't say, I don't want to say changing NIL, but putting in national guidelines, I think that's nothing but a positive thing, and here's why. Greg Sankey ultimately works for those 14 SEC schools, soon to be 16 with Oklahoma and Texas. Well, guess what? There are no schools that are going to benefit more from the wild, wild West era of NIL than the SEC. So if the SEC presidents and if the SEC athletic directors and certainly if the SEC football coaches are telling Greg Sankey, we cannot go on like this, it means that even the people that benefit the most from the current system want some kind of guidelines and regulations. So I I didn't know that that was an 8, 12, 15 minute topic, but it was an important update from Wednesday's episode. Dan Lust and I talked a lot about the idea of having a federal law, federal oversight into NIL. And it appears as though, listen, I'm not smart enough to know how quickly it'll happen, but it does appear as though it is going to happen, that it is on on the horizon. um, And I think that's good. Like, I I think it goes without saying, I think everybody knows kind of where I stand on all this NIL stuff, I'm not anti-NIL, I'm not anti-transfer portal, what I am is you can't just have the craziness that we have going on now where, um, you know, John Calipari talked about it this week, you got players coming to recruiting meetings, you know, just just point blank asking for X, Y, Z, you have players entering the transfer portal to try to leverage more money from their schools, you have high school recruits getting a lot of money, no one's anti-NIL, but we got to figure out some things, and it feels as though we are going to do that. So with that said, let's now get into the official topic of the day, and it's our old buddy, Lincoln Riley. And So here's so here's the deal on this topic, is one, I've seen some people kind of talking about it on the internet, some writers writing about it, all that good stuff, but I was on a radio show not too long ago, the last couple days, and somebody asked me a point-blank question. They said, is Lincoln Riley a new college football villain? And I thought about it, and we talked about it on that show, and I wanted to bring it to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast because one... I think it's a great topic. And two, I think Lincoln Riley is a new college football villain. We've been talking a lot about villains in this college football offseason. Jimbo Fisher appears to emerge to have – appears to have emerged as one, and I believe Lincoln Riley has done the same, and I think this is nothing but good for college football as there is clear animosity, at least in SEC country right now for Texas A&M, and there is clear animosity for Lincoln Riley and what we believe he is doing in the transfer portal and tampering and all that good stuff. So first of all, let's just get into, because a couple of you are probably sitting there, you know, you're at the gym, you're driving around, you're sitting there thinking, why would Lincoln Riley be, be a villain? And I think it's pretty straightforward. I think it's everything that he's basically done over the last six, seven, eight months. I mean, one, he leaves a, a blue blood, you know, blue chip, top 10 job in college football for Oklahoma, Oklahoma for USC. So that in and of itself upset a huge portion of the Oklahoma fan base, if not all of the Oklahoma fan base. But two, it was really how he did it. And by the way, I don't know Lincoln Riley. He seemed like a nice enough guy when I had a chance to interact with him at USC's media day. But at the same time, why I bring it up is because uh, it's not just that Lincoln Riley left Oklahoma for USC, it's how he did it. Remember, he, he had been linked to that LSU job for really several, several, several weeks prior to his departure. Not USC, I'm now. I'm talking about LSU. This was prior to his departure from Oklahoma. And if you remember, he went to the podium the night of the Bedlam game, the night after you lose to your biggest rival, and he goes, I am not leaving Oklahoma to be the head coach at LSU you can print it you can write it and I'm paraphrasing a little bit but he basically said I am not leaving Oklahoma for LSU and then 12 hours later he goes to USC one I kind of think that's a gangster move but two it clearly upset a lot of people and clearly the way he handled it I would say this from the Oklahoma perspective as well I think there were a lot of people that were clearly upset even how he handled that whole process to begin with One, he kind of was asked a question about LSU a few weeks before that Bedlam game. He kind of ducked the question. But I have a buddy who's an Oklahoma fan that really said the last two, three weeks. Oklahoma had a very late bye in the season. They come off their bye. They lose to Baylor. That was the game where Caleb Williams gets hurt. He's briefly benched for Spencer Rattler. Comes back in. They end up losing to Baylor. They go take care of Iowa State in a close, low-scoring game. And then in the final game of the season, they end up losing to Oklahoma State. So even before he officially left, there were a lot of Oklahoma fans that said, something doesn't really feel right here. He didn't really answer that question a few weeks ago about the LSU job. Uh, Something doesn't feel good. And then he goes to the podium and says, I am not going to be the LSU coach. And then 12 hours later, goes to coach USC. And so I think from the Oklahoma fan base perspective, they're like, dude, this guy had one foot out the door for a while. Don't give us this, oh, you know, I didn't, even, I didn't even communicate with USC until well after the Bedlam game on that Saturday night. Listen, it ain't my business what you do. It ain't my business why you left Oklahoma for USC, but the fact remains, everybody knows that on the way out the door, you were a little bit sketchy, and then on top of that, it's everything that he's done since he got to USC. First of all, to go back to the Oklahoma thing for a second, remember, He takes the job in early December. Caleb Williams, a bunch of Oklahoma players, most of the Oklahoma players, except for Spencer Rattler, Austin Stogner, one or two other guys, end up sticking around playing in the bowl game. And I think at that point, there was a lot of belief that there was a good chance that all these guys might stay, that Caleb Williams might stay, that Mario Williams might stay. And then all of a sudden, they're on campus for three weeks, they play in the bowl game, and then the season ends, and then they have some free time. And then all of a sudden after that, Caleb Williams decides to hit the transfer portal. Mario Williams, the wide receiver, decides to hit the transfer portal. Latrell McCutcheon, really good cornerback who I think will start at USC next year from Oklahoma, decides to enter the transfer portal. And so you have how he left Oklahoma. You have the fact that some of his players seem to be on a weird timeline where they're going to stay at Oklahoma, and then all of a sudden they decide to leave. And then, of course, you have the Jordan Addison stuff this week. And I understand the frustration of everybody who's not a USC fan with this situation with Jordan Addison. The bottom line is you can say whatever you want about we don't have proof that Lincoln Riley was tampering or that his staff was tampering and Jordan Addison has a pre-existing relationship with Caleb Williams and all that good stuff. Here's what I would say. First of all, this is not his first tampering accusation, as I said on Monday's show. Last year around this time, There was a star-wide receiver at Arkansas who goes through spring practice at Arkansas named Mike Williams, uh, Mike Williams, Mike Woods, excuse me, is seemingly happy. And then all of a sudden, all all out of nowhere, after spring ball, he ends up hitting the portal, transferring to Oklahoma. Then you have the Caleb Williams, Mario Williams situation. And then you had the Jordan Addison situation where we get reports that he's thinking about entering the portal. And before he even gets in, he's already being linked to USC. So you can tell me, that there was no tampering involved, and maybe there wasn't. But at the same time, you know who thought there was tampering involved? The Pitt coaching staff. Pat Narduzzi called Lincoln Riley. He called Lincoln Riley multiple times on Friday to voice his displeasure. So you could tell me that there's no proof that there was tampering. My proof is that this is not the first time with Lincoln Riley, and that the Pitt coaching staff thought there was something funky enough going on that they had to call Lincoln Riley themselves. So to me, yes. I believe Lincoln Riley is a villain. That is, that is. let me even backtrack. That's kind of my explanation as to why I would argue that he's a villain. And now here is why he definitively is. Because to me, a villain, there's a couple elements that go into being a villain, especially in college sports. First of all, as I just said with Lincoln Riley, I'm not saying that he's an egregious rule breaker. I'm not saying he's even a rule breaker at all. But in college sports, most of the guys that are considered villains If they're not definitively a rule breaker, they certainly push those rules to the limit, which is what Lincoln Riley has done with the tampering and what he's done with all sorts of different stuff. He's starting to push those limits where I'm not saying he's definitively done anything, but you can't just say that it's a total coincidence that three different schools now, Pitt, Oklahoma, and Arkansas, have basically accused him of tampering. And so I believe that he's a villain because, one, he's pushing the bounds of what the rules are, if not breaking them outright just like most college sports villains, by the way. It's what Barry Switzer did at Oklahoma many, many years ago. This is what Rick Pitino did at Louisville. John Calipari at Memphis. Um, you know, even Coach K, right? Like Coach K, there were a lot of reasons that he became a villain, but part of it was it felt like at the end, huh, is this guy really playing by the rules? Zion's parents are living in a whatever a 10-bedroom mansion in Durham and nobody wants to look into that? So even Coach K, Coach K never broke a rule, but it was kind of like, eh, there's something not right going on here. John Calipari, for 10 years he's been at Kentucky, 12, 13 years now, and I keep getting told that he's breaking rules. I don't have any proof he's breaking rules. Every fan base says he's paying for players. He literally came out this week in the most aggressive non-NIL stance ever, but he's a villain because other fan bases kind of don't think that he's playing on the up and up. And so yes, I believe Lincoln Riley's a villain, and then the other thing is, and I talked about this a lot with Jimbo Fisher, is that, you know, with the Jimbo Fisher stuff and with Lincoln Riley, people say, oh, you can't be a villain. You can't be a villain because he hasn't won anything yet. Well, first of all, Jimbo Fisher won a national championship, not at AM, but he did win a national championship. But with Lincoln Riley, I don't buy this narrative that you have to be like a multiple time national champion to be a villain. Why? Why do you have to be a multiple time national champion to be a villain? I mean, I, I, I used this analogy, this example a few weeks ago with Jimbo Fisher. First of all, there's Jimbo Fisher in his own right. He hasn't won anything in a and but he's pissed off basically most of the SEC, most of the Big 12 footprint with the recruiting success that he had this year. I think that guy's a villain. Jim Harbaugh, this was the example that I used a few months ago, uh, or a few weeks ago. Jim Harbaugh is a guy that I thought he was a villain. He never really won anything until this year. Now, he wasn't a villain after a while because his tactics wore out because he didn't win anything. But think back to those first two, three years. I would say Jim Harbaugh was the biggest villain in college football for a time before he won anything. Remember when he came and he did all the satellite camps and he's going city to city hosting these camps and then he had his spring practice at IMG Academy. Remember all that? Jim Harbaugh was definitely a villain and I think it's the same with Lincoln Riley. It's not that he's won multiple national championships, but it's the threat of what he is going to be capable of doing, especially if he is... Certainly, it appears pushing the rules to the boundaries, if not breaking them outright overall. Now, in terms of Lincoln Riley himself, listen, I don't know if this is what he wants. To me, this kind of reminds me, I don't know if you guys remember this, but LeBron James, this is actually another good example. Before LeBron ever won a title, he was a villain because of how he left Cleveland. And this kind of reminds me of that, right? Like Lincoln Riley, does he really want to be a villain? I don't think so. He kind of did that Players' Tribune tribute to Oklahoma, and that was kind of weird. And Oklahoma fans only got more mad about it. And so I'm not sure that he wants to be a villain. But do I think Lincoln Riley is a college football villain? I'm not going to lie. I kind of do. And to go back to what I've said many times and what I said about Jimbo Fisher a few weeks ago, I don't think it's a bad thing. Villains create interest. Villains make you want to watch. Villains make you want to watch even if you want them to win or lose. It doesn't matter. Who's the highest rated team in the NCAA tournament every year? It's either Duke or Kentucky. You tune in because you don't like Duke or because you love Duke or you don't like Calipari in Kentucky or you do like Calipari in Kentucky. Same in college football. You tune into Michigan because you want to see Jim Harbaugh choke on the big stage or you don't. You tune in, tune into Notre Dame because you either love Notre Dame and you want to see them fall apart on the biggest stage like they normally do. And so to me, when I look at this situation, I do think Lincoln Riley is a villain. I think it's good for college football. It's creating interest in the offseason. Now, I'd be mad if I was a Pitt fan. But it's creating interest in the offseason. It's creating interest in USC. It's creating interest in the Pac-12. And I'll tell you this, if he starts winning, it is only going to heighten. And I do believe that, yes, Lincoln Riley is a college football villain. All right, this is what I'm gonna do. I do wanna take a quick break. I do wanna come back. And when I come back, I wanna talk a little bit about Imani Bates, uh, former five-star. Everybody knows him, blah, 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 blah. For a couple days now, he has been linked to the Louisville, uh, school, the Louisville school. He has been linked to Louisville as a potential transfer portal destination was waiting, was waiting, was waiting, was hopeful, was hoping he would commit by now. He has not, but we're going to come back. We're going to talk about what happens if he does commit, what kind of fit will he be? And why I believe that if he ends up at Louisville, this will be nothing but good. I don't say nothing but good, but it'll be good for Kenny Payne. I'll be right back. We'll talk about any Bates. right everybody I am back good to be back good to be back I do want to switch gears a little bit do want to talk a little college hoops and obviously look you know I've said it every episode basically since the college basketball season ended but this is a busy time of year with the transfer portal but if you're tired of hearing transfer portal talk it feels as though we are finally getting to an end as I told you last week Sunday at midnight this past Sunday May 1st was the deadline to get your name into the transfer portal to be eligible for next season and so because of it we now finally have no more players really going into the portal but we have guys that are now committing and leaving the portal and we're starting to get some clarification on what rosters are going to look like over the next over next season excuse me. That said there is one big name that is kind of in the middle. He's been in the portal for a while and it appears as though he is ready to commit and that is Imani Bates. He has not officially made his announcement yet, but everything is trending towards Imani Bates, the former five-star player, who of course, if you remember, as I've talked about quite a bit on this show, At one point was the most highly coveted high school player in America, was believed to be on the trajectory to be one of the great high school players of all time, was the national player of the year as a sophomore, uh, goes through COVID, ends up reclassifying and playing at Memphis last year. Didn't necessarily work out at Memphis. He decides to hit the transfer portal because he is not yet eligible for the NBA draft. And like I said, it appears as though we are starting to get to the closing stages of his decision. Earlier this week, he announced the Final Six, Arkansas, Michigan, Eastern Michigan. He's from Eastern Michigan, or he's from Michigan, excuse me. That's where Eastern Michigan comes in. Seton Hall, DePaul, and Louisville. And while nothing is official yet, we had multiple reports from multiple recruiting writers that it appears as though the Louisville Cardinals are about to get Imani Bates to commit to them in the coming weeks. Nothing is official yet. As I record here, it is not official, but I want to start talking about it because it feels like it is all but a foregone conclusion. I actually spoke with somebody that I really respect in college basketball, never really led me wrong in all the years I know him. He told me on Thursday as well that Imani Bates is about to be a Louisville Cardinal. So let's talk about this, and we can obviously get into it in greater detail when Imani Bates officially commits, but I'll say this, from both the player perspective and the school perspective, I actually like this fit a lot. Not quite sure how good Imani Bates is going to be. I actually think he should go to the G League and develop, but it became clear that his family and his camp want him to go back to college next year. And I actually like the Louisville fit for Imani Bates and vice versa quite a bit, and here's why. First of all, Louisville just needs talented players, right? And to me, this is almost like Kenny Payne basically taking over Louisville. Uh, one, it's just jarring the lack of talent that was in this program even last season when Chris Max started as the head coach before he was, ult- I guess he ultimately quit. He wasn't really fired. Um... But it was jarring the lack of talent in this program when Kenny Payne took over. And so to me, this is almost like when a football coach takes over a program and he just recruits a bunch of players and he just throws them into the fire and he says, hey, there is plenty of playing time to be had in this program. Come in here, earn your spot and play right away. For Amani Bates, that's exactly what he needs. And we'll get into the Imani Bates perspective in a minute. But from Louisville's perspective, this is great. I don't know if Amani Bates will ever live up to what he was hyped to be when he was a 15-16 year old high school player. I don't think he probably will be. But at the same time, he is a 6 foot 8, 6 foot 9 wing that as a 17 year old freshman last year when he should have been a senior in high school, averaged almost 10 points per game on 33% three point shooting during the season. Now, if you watch the games, you know he's got a lot of flaws in his game. He doesn't really make people better. Um, he doesn't, uh, you, know, you know, he didn't shoot the ball outside of three-point range particularly well. When he got in the paint, he needs to add muscle. And this is not a criticism of him. I think it's a fact. I think it's probably things that he, Kenny Payne, all these coaching staffs have actually talked to him about. At the same time, though, you can't teach six foot eight. You can't teach put the ball on the floor. You can't teach shoot thirty-three percent from three as a seventeen-year-old high school player. That should a kid that should be in high school and so to bring him in, you're just bringing in a super talented player into the program and then you got to hope that the background of Kenny Payne of Danny Manning of all these guys that have been around basketball forever, Danny Manning of course the assistant coach at Louisville, longtime NBA player, longtime Wake Forest head coach, former head coach at Tulsa, coached at Maryland last year, you hope that you bring in a really talented player. And you hope that he develops under a staff that has a ton of NBA experience. And again, we could criticize Imani Bates, and trust me, I have. He did average almost double figures as a freshman last year. So that's the first reason why I like it, is I just think Louisville needs talented players. Just get them into the program, and you figure it out from there. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But there's no reason not to take him if you're Louisville. I think the second thing is, I think this immediately creates buzz for Louisville and interest in Louisville in a way that there would not be if a player of Imani Bates' stature of his notoriety, and I would argue he's going to be one of the two or three most famous, if you will, college basketball players in America next year right up there with Oscar Shibway and Hunter Dickinson and Caleb Love and guys like that. This automatically brings eyeballs and interest to the University of Louisville. And what I would say is a couple things. One, um, you know, I, I've said for a long time, I believe that Louisville is one of the best jobs in college basketball for all of the reasons that I've already said. They play in what is essentially an NBA arena. On top of that, they have what is essentially a, a major blue blood fan base. The city loves Louisville. They have a massive fan base. They're really well funded. But the results just haven't been there on the court. I mean, If you look it up, it is kind of jarring what Louisville's track record has been over the last couple of years. I looked it up prior to this segment. How about this? One NCAA tournament win since 2015. Since 2015, they have one NCAA tournament win that came during the 2017 NCAA tournament. That was the year Donovan Mitchell was there. Now, to be fair, 2020, if there was a tournament, they probably would have been a favorite to at least make it to the Sweet 16, would have been a second or third seed. But if you need some perspective on how down and uninteresting Louisville has been, how about this? Villanova has made more Final Fours since 2016 than Louisville has NCA Tournament wins. Villanova has won more national championships in the past seven years, six years, whatever it is, than Louisville has won NCA Tournament games. Villanova has two national championships since 2016. Louisville has one NCA Tournament win. That shows you how far Louisville has fallen down the pecking order. Forget the fact that Auburn has made a Final Four over that stretch, multiple Sweet 16s. I think they have anyway. Forget the fact that Alabama made a Sweet 16, that Arkansas has made back-to-back Elite Eights. You start thinking about all of the programs that have had all of this success since Louisville has been relevant, Amani Mates immediately brings that, and he immediately brings it in a way that I just think it makes Louisville interesting in a year where, I'm not saying you can't go into the year and not be interesting, but think about who you're competing with in the ACC and in the state of Kentucky. North Carolina is gonna be the preseason number one team in the country. We're gonna be watching them. Uh, Duke is going to have the number one recruiting class with a new head coach. We're going to be watching them. Kentucky is always interesting from their perspective within your own state, so we're going to be watching them. And so when I look at this move for Louisville, it automatically makes them interesting. You're going to tune in. You're going to want to see what Louisville looks like with the Monty Bates on the floor. And that's why I like it for Louisville. And the last reason is is this. It's basically only a one-year commitment, right? Monty Bates, as I said, is not yet eligible for the NBA draft. He ain't coming back for a third year of college basketball he ain't coming back for a third year of college basketball and so because of it if you're Louisville and if it doesn't work out guess what it's only a one year commitment and you got a player that may be an NBA player that has NBA potential if it doesn't work out well guess what if it doesn't work out he's gone in a year you move on whatever if it does work out though all of a sudden, Kenny Payne can say, hey, look, look at what we did with Imani. He came in, it was a little bit of a mess. Didn't really work out at Memphis. We came in, we brought him in here. We, we fixed some things up, we sent him to the NBA. So for me, I think it's a zero loss game for, for Louisville taking Imani Bates. At the same time, what I would also say from Imani Bates's perspective is this. I think this is a great fit for him too. Now, I said it a minute ago. If it was me advising him, if it was me advising his family, First of all, I would have told them, don't come to college basketball this past year. I think that was just a big, big, big mistake. Um, and I would have said, don't come back to college basketball in 2022, 2023. Go to the G League, get off the radar, get out of the spotlight and work on your game. Go with that G League coaching staff headed by Jason Hart, who played in the NBA for 10 years. Go ahead, stay with them, get off everybody's radar and focus on what you need to do to get ready for the 2023 NBA draft. That's what I would have told Monty Bates' family if they had asked me, but they didn't ask me and so because of it, it's clear that they're going to play college basketball, and if you're going to play college basketball, this is actually kind of the perfect spot. One, like I said, Louisville really needs talent. They just need players, and you're going to be able to come in, and you're going to be able to get as many shots as you want. You're going to be able to do a lot of different things. That was not the case at Memphis last year, and I know people want to criticize Penny Hardaway for everything. You can criticize him for taking Imani Bates, but part of the reason Imani Bates struggled in Memphis was because he had a lot of good players in front of him, and you know, the the players that were at Memphis last year, Lester Quinones, DeAndre Williams, Landers, Nolly, those guys are going to help you win games right now. And so I think Penny Hardaway was trying to find that balance between developing Imani but playing the guys that help him win prior to Imani Bates' injury. And he had an obligation to play the older guys because they were helping him win. With Imani, though, at Louisville, well, guess what? Now you don't got to worry about that. There ain't no players at Louisville. You, you don't got to worry about that. You got to worry about getting on the floor, getting all the shots you want. And oh, by the way, you also have that really, really, really big stage at Louisville as well. I mentioned it, the ACC, two games probably against North Carolina, two games against Duke, one game against Kentucky. You're playing in the Maui Invitational. Monty Bates and your, you know his camp, If if you want a stage, if you want to prove how good you are, if you want the chance to show everybody that you're that dude that everybody thought you were, this is about as perfect of a place. And keep in mind again, Kenny Payne, head coach, comes from the New York Knicks, was a great talent developer at Kentucky before that. That's why the Knicks wanted to hire him, it was because of his success, success developing players at Kentucky. Knicks had a young roster, it helped them out. Danny Manning helped develop, you know, he's a longtime NBA player, longtime coach. This is almost a perfect fit for Imani Bates. I don't know if it will work, but he could have done a lot worse in finding another school. Really quickly, um, you know, the only other real transfer news that I think is worth noting since the last episode, obviously talked a little bit about Baylor Shireman, but um, that news is that, uh, that news is that K.J. Williams, this was an interesting one, so K.J. Williams played at Murray State last year, and I'll be quick on this one, was the Ohio Valley Player of the Year, was the best player on that Murray State team that won 30 games in the regular season under Matt McMahon. And when Matt McMahon left, K.J. Williams declared for the NBA draft. Big 6'10 player, super athletic, rebounder, tough, physical, whatever. Kind of an older school big guy, doesn't have the great outside game, the great 15 to 20-foot range that you need to play in the NBA. But he declares for the draft, goes through the draft process, and I guess it became clear that he was not going to get drafted. And so because of it, he ends up deciding to come back to college. And on, I guess it would have been Thursday. Drumroll, please. He decides, I'm coming back to college and <laughs> he's going to go play for Matt McMahon at LSU, baby. So Matt McMahon, the former LSU head coach, bringing in a couple of players from that really successful uh, Murray State team as KJ Williams joins his former teammate, uh, Justice Hill, over at LSU. Really quickly from the LSU perspective, first of all, I think they're getting a really good player, and the thing with LA, the thing with a lot of these transfers from the low major to the high major level, it just doesn't translate. It just doesn't work out. Um, a kid is, isn't big enough, isn't strong enough, isn't athletic enough. I don't think that is going to be an issue with K.J. Williams. Like I said a minute ago, he was the Ohio Valley Player of the Year. He was basically the backbone of a Murray State team that entered the NCAA Tournament with 30 wins. Absolutely awesome, average, eighteen points, eight and a half rebounds per game. But if you look at some of his success early in the season, this was a guy that held his own whenever uh, Murray State played big time competition. He had twelve and eight against Auburn. He had thirteen and eight against Memphis. And so I'm not saying he's going to be a twenty and ten guy at LSU, but I don't think the jump up in levels is going to hurt him as much as any as much as some other people. What I would also say really quickly about LSU, LSU hoops. You know, I think Matt McMahon has done a pretty good job so far um, in kind of restocking this roster. Now it's got a long way to go, uh, and he did lose a lot of talent. But I do think that um, you know it's it's starting to come together for a team that can be competitive in the SEC. A team that's probably, if there's no issues with LSU in terms of the NCAA tournament, probably a team. Uh, you know, that can compete for a tournament bid beyond the bubble if they are not ineligible from the NCAA tournament as the Will Wade investigation starts to wrap down. They're bringing back a couple nice players from last year's team, Justice Williams and Mawani Wilkinson. Uh, Adam Miller, a transfer who was there last year, is considering returning, and they've added a couple nice pieces. Like I said, the two kids from from Murray State, Justice Hill, now K.J. Williams, Trey Hannibal as well, another good player from Murray State. Uh, Also, Cam Hayes, who was a a decent guard at, at NC State, is going as well, and then the big news was Terrell Ward, a top 40, top 35 prospect out of high school basketball, decided to commit to LSU last week. So K.J. Williams is headed to LSU. I really do like that fit. Curious to see how Matt McMahon rounds out that roster. But obviously, look, you know, when when all his players were in the portal, when all his players were in the portal, I had to be a little critical. But I like how he has put together this roster since then. All right, that's what I want to do. I do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back and wrap the show with a little where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. So we'll do all that. We'll come back. I will be back momentarily. All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back, good to be back. Uh, Final segment of the show, so good to be back. Do quickly want to wrap with where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. In one quick minute, before I do, though, a couple reminders from the beginning of the show. One, there will be no episode on Monday. That's just, you know, listen, it's Mother's Day weekend. Going to have family in town. Want to make sure to spend time with them. All that good stuff. No show Monday. We'll be back on Wednesday. This is the time of year where it feels like, eh, if I miss a show, am I really missing that much? Now, look, if something crazy happens, if John Calipari takes the Lakers coaching job, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm obviously going to come on and figure out a way to do the Monday show. And by the way, John Calipari is not taking the Lakers coaching job, but you get the point. If something crazy happens, I'll obviously come on. But at the same time, probably no show Monday. Don't expect a show Monday. That's probably one where I'm taking off. The other thing, as I told you off the top, we are switching hosting platforms for this podcast. That means nothing for you. Nothing should change. But every once in a while, there's a glitch. And so if all of a sudden you don't start seeing episodes pop up, there's always a possibility that something happened. So make sure to keep an eye on that subscription if you are subscribed But I don't expect there to be any issues. I've been promised there are not any issues. But at the same time, just keep an eye out for that. With that said, do want to wrap. And do want to wrap with what is quickly becoming America's favorite segment, Where Aaron Was Right, Where Aaron Was Wrong. By now you know the drill. Uh, If you have not heard this segment before, it's pretty straightforward. Stole it from my buddy Colin Cowherd. You know Colin, you love Colin. Maybe you don't love Colin. He's a good friend of mine. I think he's brilliant. And one thing that he does every single week is where Colin was right, where Colin was wrong. And I brought it to this show. And the reason I brought it to this show is pretty straightforward. It is because when it comes to this show, you already know that nobody loves telling you everything he got right quite like your boy Torres. At the same time, I also get a lot of stuff wrong too And so I got to go ahead and absolutely own it, okay? Not just all the good stuff, but we got to talk about the bad stuff too. Slap myself on the wrist, make fun of myself a little bit. And so let's get into it. Friday edition of Where Aaron Was Right, Where Aaron Was Wrong. I think we'll keep doing these on Friday. It has a fun end of the week vibe. Let's get into it. Where Aaron Was Right. So Baylor Shireman committed on... Wednesday to, or I guess it was Tuesday, to Creighton University over offers from all these other schools, Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, Gonzaga, whatever. And we talked about it, and I don't mean to belabor the point, but when the commitment went down, there was this big buzz that, oh, it's about transfer, it's about NIL, and he's just taking the biggest bag. Do you really think if it was strictly about dollars and cents, Kansas, Gonzaga, Arizona couldn't compete with Creighton? Give me a break. Baylor Shireman said, That it is about fit, it is about opportunity, and him being the missing piece. I should mention, by the way, if it was really about money, he'd just go pro. But I bring it up because for years I have been telling you guys as college basketball fans and college football fans, transfer portal recruiting is different than high school recruiting. There is a reason that Duke and Kentucky and Kansas and now Arkansas and a few others dominate high school recruiting. It is a different way of recruiting. It's recruiting a different player. For those players coming out of high school, it's about gear and it's about facilities and it's about being wide-eyed and it's about playing in front of 20,000 fans. When you're a transfer, especially a transfer with one year of eligibility left, none of that matters. It's simply about who can get me in, where can I be in the best position, where can I thrive, and where can I immediately get out? I'll give you an example from this year. This time last year, Walker Kessler enters the transfer portal was that North Carolina, McDonald's, All-American, all that good stuff. Had a million options, could have gone anywhere, could have gone to Kentucky, could have gone here, could have gone there. He chooses Auburn. On paper, it's like, Auburn, that's kind of weird, but he came in, he played the exact role that he wanted to play, he balled out, he was the National Defensive Player of the Year, and he got out and he's going to the NBA right now. That is a perfect example of how transfer portal recruiting is different. First time around, big bright lights, Carolina, Dean Dome, Michael Jordan, 20,000 fans, whatever. Second time he's like, get me to the place where I can play, play the role that I want and get the heck out. That is transfer portal recruiting. That is how it's going to be. That is how it is. And I think fans have to continue to readjust. Hey, every transfer is not going to be the right fit for us. Just because we're great recruiting high school players, it's a different deal when it comes to transfers, where Aaron was wrong. So let's get into a little bit of the NBA playoffs. I don't talk a ton of NBA playoffs, but one thing that I was just dead wrong about, I watch enough NBA to know Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, really good basketball players. Not sure if you heard, really good. And I thought this was going to be one of those years where they kind of sleepwalk through the regular season, sleepwalk, get in, just get in as a seven seed, who really cares, playing the playing game, whatever. And then they were going to go full beast mode, Kevin Durant doing what he does as one of the best players in the world. Uh, Yeah, that did not happen at all as they got swept out by the Boston Celtics. We'll save Jason Tatum for later, maybe with where Aaron was right, where Aaron is wrong. But, you know, this is a changing NBA right in front of our eyes. I said it a few weeks ago, the young, homegrown, dynamic teams are the ones that are having success, the ones that actually played together in the regular season, and man, oh man, did the Nets look old, unprepared, etc. cetera. Uh, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, I was expecting big things from, I was dead wrong, four games and out they get sweeped by, they got swept by the Boston Celtics. Where Aaron was right, let me just say this, I was dead right on Ben Simmons all along. I've been saying since the day he reported to training camp with the Philadelphia 76ers in October. This whole thing about mental health is a sham. I'm not underselling mental health. I tell you guys and girls this all the time. My wife works in mental health. My sister-in-law works in mental health. My sister works in mental health. No one takes this stuff more seriously than I do. But when Ben Simmons doesn't talk to the Philadelphia 76ers from the day the season ends in May through the beginning of October, and then only begins talking to them when they start docking them pay. Then he shows up to training camp. He tanks the first workout. Then the next day he says he has a back issue. And then after the doctors clear him with a back issue, only then does he say it's mental health. There's nothing, you know, mental health is a super serious topic, but it was so obvious from the beginning that he was using it as an excuse to get out of playing for the Philadelphia 76ers. Then he gets to Brooklyn. Then he, we had the whole fiasco with, is he going to play in game four? He's not going to play in game four. He's on the bench. What's the deal with his back? Now he's having surgery. I don't know what I've been telling you from the beginning though, this whole thing about mental health, this whole thing about this, this whole thing about this, it was a sham. He didn't want to play in Philadelphia, whatever but I am so glad to see other people in the media come after this guy. I'm not saying he's a bad human being, but he tried to use mental health as an excuse. I don't know what's up with the back. It's very weird to me that he never played competitive basketball for a year and now needs surgery. Very strange. I wish him well. Whatever he is going through, I hope he recovers from surgery, but I was telling you from the beginning, there's something not right here. Don't make excuses for this guy. And I give credit to all the people in the media that finally came around to this, even if it was a little too late where Aaron was wrong. Really quickly, um, about this time last year, NBA playoffs start, and Giannis Antetokounmpo was coming off of back-to-back MVP seasons where he completely underachieved in the NBA playoffs. And I watched the NBA playoffs. I don't talk about it on this show, but it doesn't mean that I'm not watching it. And I sat there and said about a year ago, Giannis is fine. But let's stop talking about him as an absolute superstar. If you watch the first two rounds of the NBA playoffs last year, they played, I don't even remember who they played in round one, but round two they played Brooklyn. And the games that they won was when Giannis played sort of as a hybrid role player. And if you actually watch the games, Chris Middleton was closing out the games, making all the big shots. And I said about a year ago, I said Giannis is a great player, but he's more role player than superstar. Uh, Yeah, I was dead wrong on that. By the end of the playoffs, Giannis had the case as the best player in the world, scores 50 points in the deciding game, and right now, I don't even really think it's a debate. This guy is the best player in basketball on the planet. This guy dominates the post down low, and he's seven feet, can handle the ball, attacks the rim, but he's also an elite rim protector, an elite shot blocker, and this guy has just come so far in such such a short amount of time. I think it's a really cool story. I think it's really fun. I love the fact that he loves being in Milwaukee, that he's not looking to leave for somewhere else. But I thought this guy was like the greatest role player that's ever lived. Now he's just the greatest player on the planet. I was dead wrong on that. Or Aaron was right. So I told you about, well, I can tell you exactly how long ago it was, five months ago. If you remember, the, the day, the Monday after Christmas, I came on this show and I said something interesting happened here and I don't know if you guys and girls are paying attention. But Christmas Day this year fell on a Saturday. Christmas Day has long been owned by the NBA and Christmas Day we had two NFL games on Saturday. It really started the year before we had a Christmas Day game Vikings versus Saints. It did some absurd number like 20 million viewers. This year we had Packers versus Browns Saturday night on Christmas Day. And everybody I knew was watching that game, and nobody was watching the NBA. And I said on the following show, I said, you know what? You pay attention. The NFL got a taste of what that Christmas Day flavor tastes like. Everybody's at home. No one's got anywhere to go. Everything's closed. I guarantee you, the NFL's about to take over Christmas Day. The NBA, they were doing their whole, you know, wor- you know, the, the whole thing two years ago where they weren't sure if they were going to start the season, and what are do we doing? it's about player safety. And it's about this and that. And the NFL said, okay, cool. We're gonna play on Christmas Day. They got a taste of it two years ago. This year they had two games, and it was announced this week that they are playing three games next year on Christmas Day. So the way that we do it on Thursday, where we have the early game, the afternoon game, and then the night game, we're doing the same thing on Christmas. I'll say this. Everybody likes to crush Roger Goodell. Everybody likes to criticize him. Everybody likes to say how bad of a of an of a commissioner he is. All this dude does is continue to make money for his owners. They own, basically, August through February, they own Thanksgiving, they they have a million networks that broadcast their games, they're going to Amazon for Thursday nights next year, now they're about to take over Christmas Day, three games this coming year, and I don't expect it to slow down at all, where Aaron was wrong. Let's get back to the NBA, and let me say this. If you're a longtime listener to the show, before the 2020 NBA draft, that was the one with Anthony Edwards, James Wiseman, Lamelo Ball, and a few others. I said, I'm out on Anthony Edwards. This is a guy that did nothing at Georgia, underachieved, the team finished in 13th place in the SEC. And if you remember, right before the draft, he said, I don't even like basketball. Football was my favorite sport growing up, but I saw the future was in basketball, the money was in basketball, so I started playing basketball. And I said on this show, Uh, Yeah, I am out on that guy. No thank you. I'll take the guy that loves basketball. I'm not touching that guy with a 10-foot pole. I'll fast forward, and Anthony Edwards is absolutely awesome. First of all, it's a direct indictment on on Tom Crean just being a total knucklehead. But Anthony Edwards, 21 points per game, four and a half rebounds per game. This guy was just absolutely awesome this season. And then on top of that, I mean, he was just phenomenal in the NBA playoffs to the point that I'm not going to lie. He's kind of like one of my favorite players in the NBA to watch right now. He is so fun. He is so dynamic. He is so athletic. He is so fearless. He almost plays basketball like a running back. Full speed ahead. He's coming at you. He's trying to dunk on you. He's trying to kill you. I love everything about Anthony Edwards. And this was a guy that I said coming into the seat, coming into his NBA draft, I said, I would not touch this guy with a 10-foot pole. I was dead wrong on Anthony Edwards. Could not be more excited to watch this guy's career unfold. Really, really, really exciting times. Where Aaron was right, we'll wrap on this one. NFL Draft, Malik Willis. Remember what I told you a week before the draft? I said it feels like we're trying a little bit too hard to make Malik Willis into a story when he's not really a story. We need the quarterbacks, we need the star power, we need the pizzazz of the quarterback position, and it feels like we're trying really hard to make Malik Willis into something that he isn't. This is a guy that couldn't win the starting job at Auburn. This is a guy that went to Liberty, played for Hugh Freeze. Hugh Freeze is a great coach, but it was not an NFL type system. And I just said I don't I don't get I don't think he's going first round. Well, not only did he not go first round, he went third round. Missed, wasn't in the first round, wasn't in the second round, ends up going third round. And listen, we all know what has happened since then. Ryan Tannehill said that he isn't going to mentor him, blah, 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 blah. I think that's like literally the least interesting storyline I can possibly imagine. But at the same time, I told you, I said, this guy's fine. He'll be okay. He'll be drafted. And maybe in time, he can emerge as a backup. Um, But what he is not right now, this second, is a player that can step into the NFL right away. I don't get the first round buzz. I don't see it happening. All right. I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Before we get out of here, again, no show on Monday, so I will be back on Wednesday. And I should say, I hope all of you have a great Mother's Day weekend. Before we get out of here, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. Hope everybody has a great Mother's Day weekend. I'll be back next week, probably Wednesday, if something crazy happens on Tuesday. Until then, hope everybody has a great weekend. Enjoy your mothers. Enjoy Mother's Day. I will be back next week.